Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to our first ever live Hanover House. It's our first ever live London Lyceum episode of any sort, so I'm really looking forward to this. Um, and I'm joined by a crew of great brothers here with me. So I, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we've got Jake Stone in the house. We've got Garrett Walden in the house, Cody Float, Jesse Owens, and Jonathan Badley in the house. So I'm really looking forward to this. Now, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of, you know, kind of a rundown how that show is going to go because this is live. This is our first ever time doing this. Um, so it's unique. It's going to be fun, I hope. And one of the cool things about this platform that we now have that we record on is we have this opportunity to have an actual audience and you guys can call in live on the show and we'll record you on the show just like you are one of the hosts. So as we go, you can send me questions whenever you want. I'll get a little notification. I can let you in the show and you can either chat it to me or you can talk to us like you, you jump in and it gets recorded. Um, or I'll tell you at different points, hey, anybody in the audience have any thoughts, questions, we'd be happy to take those at that time. So if you've got a burning question while someone's talking, while Jake's talking, you can go ahead and shoot it in then. But if you want to wait for when I uh, give you the chance, that's fine too. So if you haven't listened to a Hanover House before, if you're listening now and you're not, it's not part of the live episode, you're listening on your podcast app, wherever you are, just to give you a reminder of the, the kind of the tone and flavor this episode. Uh, We try to do these like once a month. And the goal behind this was most of our our weekly content is we get a high-powered scholar, we ask them questions. And it's a little, I mean, we try to do it informally as best we can, but it is a little bit more formal. And this was supposed to be, uh, these are all people we have relationship with for the most part. So it can be a little bit easier to have a just kind of unfiltered conversation at the coffee house. But but don't think of this as like theology on the cheap. Um, the London Lyceum, we're, we are not like bottom shelf theology. There is a place for the bottom shelf. There's a place for putting the cookies on the bottom so that everybody can have, have a bite. That's not what our goal is. Uh, that's not what our mission is. We want to keep the top shelf cookies up there and make you reach for them, make you grow, make you stretch and encourage you in that way. So we want to provide serious theology for a serious church. So even though we try to cut up a little bit here, we do want to keep it uh, in like actual legitimate, in, in intelligent, difficult theology. So before we do this, I want to introduce everybody who's here. Uh, Jake Stone, if you're not familiar with him, uh, he's like total Baptist nerd, and now he's uh, an MDiv student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And of course, it's the Southern Baptist, kind of like the Ohio State. And uh, what you work at the library now, so he just nerds out on Baptist theses and you know dissertations. Well, let's and- let's get it if we're gonna intro right, Jordan. I work at the James Pettigrew Boys Centennial <laughs> Library at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We try to be precise here in the Hanover House. <laughs> That's right. So I've got I have actually got quite a bit of Baptist history nerd power here. We've also got Garrett Walden, who he is our newly minted book review editor, uh, which I don't know if he knew what he was getting himself into, but now I send him all the book reviews and say, please read this and tell me what's what how to make this better. So Garrett, you're a PhD student under Michael Haken at Southern as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. So I'm in the uh the um historical and theological studies track. So I take some systematic seminars, some church history seminars, but I'll primarily be focusing on uh, 18th century Baptist history with Dr. Haken. Excellent. And we've got Cody Float as well, 
who is a THM student in Old Testament at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, but you're also a church member at your local church. Which, How long have you been at this church? I've been at Morning View now for five years. Okay, and were you like an intern or a pastoral assistant at some point? Yeah, so I was a pastoral intern for what kind of amounts to three years. We have like a formal, like bivocational program. And I went through that program. And now I'm just, yeah, I'm just a church member um, serving, teaching when they allow me to, you know. So, uh, and yeah, working on school. So, excellent. And then we also have uh, Dr. Jesse Owens with us, who, you're at Welch College, and you are also a Baptist nerd, so I'll call you out. Um, and we've got to convince you to come on and talk about the Salters Hall controversy and an upcoming episode soon. So I'll tease everybody with that, because I think that would be a tremendous time. Um, anything you'd like to add about your little bio or anything? No, um, that's good. I pastor a church here in Gallatin, Tennessee, uh, same town that Welch College is in. Um, but no, that's it. Like Garrett, I uh, studied under Dr. Haken as well. Excellent. And I think we've got Jonathan Badley here as well. He's one of our fellows. He's a PhD student at Vanderbilt. Um, he just dropped off. I'm not sure why, but he'll probably be back. So just to give you a shout out to him. And Connor McMakin may also be joining us sometime along the route. He's doing, I know, pastoral care and counseling, you know, the, the real world stuff that we that we want to equip pastors with. But we also realize that there are a lot of church members and a lot of pastors who just have that intellectual itch that they need scratched a little bit. So that's part of what we try to do and serve is to to press forward in those sorts of good those sorts of conversations. So, oh, here's Jonathan. Uh, I'll I'll see Jonathan. I told everybody you're a PhD student at Vanderbilt. Are you a PhD candidate? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've advanced to okay. PhD. Perfect. And you're studying all sorts of Reformation sort of stuff. And I think a lot of your research is in what we're planning on covering is just understanding the practice of communion and how different churches have approached that question, right? Yeah, absolutely. The connection between uh, communion preparation and ecclesiology. Excellent. So anything I say that's completely dumb, he will be able to correct, which is great. I highly doubt it. Um, <laughs> so with with all that introduction in tow, let's get into the topic. So I think I put out on Twitter, hey, let's we're doing a live episode. What would you want us to talk about? And it was a pretty close vote, but this one came out on top, was debating and understanding the nature of who should be given... I guess, access to the table at your local church. So imagine you're at your own uh, Baptist church or your own Presbyterian church or whatever it may be. Uh, who should be able to have access to the table? And I think in Baptist life, Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there seem to be three general positions on this, where you'd have closed communion, you'd have close communion, which to me, I don't understand. Why name them that? Because that's so confusing. Um, and then open communion. So closed communion would be uh, the, the the only people who can come to the table are those who are actually members at your local church. Uh, closed communion would be, you can come to the table if you're not a member of my church, but you have to be baptized by immersion. And then open communion would be, as long as you confess Christ as Savior, doesn't matter. You can be baptized as an infant. You don't have to be a member here, etc. You can come take of the table here. Is that the right way to set the table, Jake? 
Yeah, so basically, in many ways, the historical terms that were used a lot were open and strict communion, which strict communion was basically the close position. What we, How we think of closed is really more that comes out of the landmark movement in the United States towards the middle to the end of the 19th century. Uh, but basically, where you've got what falls in line is you either believe that only Baptist can come to the table— or that it's open to anyone who would profess Christ in that sense. So that would be basically awesome. in today's today's landscape. That's your three main you know views. Yeah. So I guess there's two main tracks. I'm kind of interested in going here, and this is totally ad hoc. So if you're listening to this live right now, or you're listening to this you know some other time, uh, we don't script these episodes. So when we do a normal interview, we actually prepare a lot of questions in advance. We think through our stuff. For these, uh, for the most part, it's it's totally just like if I took Jake and Garrett and said, hey, let's go hang out. Uh, let's go get some coffee. And we just started talking about a topic. So just with that in mind, these are unscripted. But I do think there's two tracks I'm interested in following is one, the historical view. So just thinking broadly, how did the reformers think about this question? Because I imagine if you're a Presbyterian or, or, or a different Church of England or something like that, you might have a different view than Baptistic uh, understanding would, would have a view on this. And then we can talk also what's your own personal opinion, because I think we have some differences of opinion here. I'm not going to force anybody to come out and tell you what, what they think, but if they want to, um, Jake included, I, I know he, he will be happy to share his own opinion, and I'll be happy to share mine. So maybe we Let start... Let me just qualify something real quick. When we do the Hanover House, since I don't know how to drink coffee, according to most everybody in this group, I prefer to think of the Hanover House more as like the tent meetings, we just wing it here. So that's how I like to think about it. Cody, they serve just <laughs> cups of milk at your coffee shop, right? Uh, yeah, sadly. So there, there's a drink there for Jake. Yeah, I mean, if he wants to get chocolate milk with all the other, you know, five and six year old girls, and he's welcome to. So. <laughs> well, I just always remember that the that just remember that it was said the land of Canaan flowed with milk and honey, not not with coffee. So I stand more biblical than any of y'all. So if we want to go down that trail, Jake, I'll, I'll tell you this: an hour away from where you are, you live in Louisville. Go go over to Lexington. What is it? Uh, coffee times? I think it is. They've got like a frozen hot chocolate that's delicious. That so sounds if, good. if you're just not in the mood for that, I, I like uh, just call it what it is, and, and there's no shame in drinking a frozen hot chocolate. It's not coffee, anyway. Connor, welcome to the show. Connor is pastor up in Michigan, and Jonathan, I guess, or John, I, I guess I should. You put Jonathan in here, so I'm going to call you Jonathan. Um, but you guys are at the same church, so Connor's the pastor there, senior pastor there, right? Is that your title? Well, I'm at the church. Well, I, I know now. Now I've got to couch everything I say. My pastor's here. All right, watch <laughs> out. No, John. John's doing a lot of. Uh, he's doing schoolwork down there in Nash Vegas, so he's uh, not able to be physically present. But he's uh, yeah. He's we go to the same church. It's That's great awesome when he's here. So we miss him, Connor, and I guess everybody who's listening. Goal for right now. I want to talk. I guess first historical views on how to think through this issue of who should be allowed to come to the table. And I don't know if Jesse or Jake wants to give maybe let's think early Baptists. And then does that 
opinion on that morph over time to where we're at today. And then Jonathan, I'd love after that, if you can give me a little bit more lay of the land on just the Reformation understanding purely uh, irrespective of Baptistic life. So Jesse, Jake, one of you guys want to take that, that historical question and help me understand all that's going on there. I'll let Jake speak for the particular Baptist. Um, typically the general Baptist um, practiced closed or close communion. Um, so requiring that a person be baptized by immersion to partake of the supper. Um, and, th- and that's a pretty standard view. There's not a lot of debate about that. I think among, again, Jake can maybe address this. Um, I think among the particular Baptists, uh, there's maybe a bit of debate in the 17th century. Um, but uh, the general Baptist pretty much uh, held, um, yeah, close communion or even closed communion sort of across the board. Um, and, and that's pretty consistent. Um, some might say that's because of their sectarian um, views on maybe some things. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's pretty consistent there. Um, I was listening to your episode from uh, just a few days ago, I guess, on Spurgeon. So I guess by the time you get into the 19th century, uh, things have changed quite a bit. I, my guess would be a lot has changed even by the 18th century. Uh, on this in some circles, but, um, but yeah, for, for me, just, uh, addressing the issue of the general Baptist close communion, uh, is pretty much the norm. Yeah. So when we're talking about the particular Baptist, um, the majority of those men in churches in the 17th century, uh, would have been very similar. They would have held to closer or close, but there was always a, uh, strong minority that held to open communion. And that goes to the big, to the early days when we're talking about in the 1640s when these churches are first, you know, organizing and forming. Uh, Henry Jesse, who was a very prominent leader during that time, was an open communion advocate, and so there was always a stream in that part of Baptist life. Now, what's fascinating was when the first London Baptist Confession was written, there was nothing in there said about you know who could come to the table. When they did the second, when they did a revision of it in 1646, and Benjamin Cox, Nehemiah Cox's father, answered some charges, they actually inserted a statement there about that only those who had been baptized could come to the table. Now, when the second London Baptist Confession is written, um, written in 1677, that's when it's published first, and and then you know, the General Assembly in 1689 will endorse it. There's nothing in the Second London that says who can come to the table, uh, and in the appendix towards the end of that, that they write on baptism, they talk about how there was a difference of opinion among them uh, in their in their association. But they didn't want to make that an association fellowship issue. Now, the strong majority were close communion. Uh, probably one of the most, I don't know if intense would be the right word, but it was a very, uh, yeah, intense would be the right word, uh, debates in early, you know, particular Baptist life was between John Bunyan, who took an, an open communion view, but also Bunyan was open membership, which is why, you know, some of us would question whether he's even really should be classified as a Baptist or not. And then William Kiffin, you know, writes in response in 1681, you know, pushing back against Bunyan's view. So it's, it's very fascinating um, that the majority were close. There was, though, always an element of open. Now, going on with what Jesse said, Dr. Chang and talking about with, with Spurgeon, his day, a friend of mine on Twitter commented, Ben Stratton, that I would agree with him, some of his observations. Sometimes this gets thrown as, you know, over here in America, it was just the landmarkers 
who were just dominant, you know, and everybody changed over in Britain. Um, but the change in Britain among particular Baptists really doesn't happen until the early 19th century due to the influence of Robert Hall Jr. But you still had very much your, your, your prominent Baptist theologians among the particular Baptists, you know, John Gill, uh, Andrew Fuller, and Abraham Booth, all were advocates of what we would call close or strict communion. And I would agree with Ben's observation that the reason that in America it goes longer with being close communion is not really the landmark movement, because there were non-landmark uh, Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists who were uh, vehemently opposed to um, open communion. John Dagg, R.B.C. Howell were Southern Baptists who are not landmarkers. They battled against uh, J.R. Graves, but they were against open communion, and Francis Whalen in the North was opposed to it as well. And that's because in America, uh, Andrew Fuller and John Gill were the most influential British particular Baptist ministers. Robert Hall Jr. was not very influential here at all. He isn't in Britain. Um, he was a great orator, but he's, his influence is not really here in America. So that would be one reason why it stays longer over here. And of course, the landmark movement does have some uh, impact with that in the South. Garrett, I know you've been doing a lot of research on what John Ryland or, or, or whatnot. Do you have anything to add uh, in comparison to Jake? Besides, if you want to be more sophisticated and call them Baptistic Congregationalists. <laughs> I haven't read uh, Dr. Bingham's book, uh, Orthodox Radicals, so I don't think I can use the term. Is it because you can't afford like me, you can't afford the book yet? Is that what it is? I can't is afford it yet. I'm hoping enough rich people buy it and it'll be released as a paperback for me. Um, so, but so in the 18th century, yeah, there's, Jake mentioned the, you know, the Kiffin Bunyan debate in the 18th century, it kind of revives again. Um, John Collett Ryland is someone I've been doing some research on and he is, uh, he started off as a strict communion person at his church in Warwick and, you know, a few years into his pastorate there, he becomes, uh, open communion and ends up leaving the church probably because of that and takes the church at Northampton. Um, he authors a, a a work, a modest plea for open communion, and it gets picked up by a guy named Daniel Turner and gets some pretty broad circulation. They kind of uh, circulated under a pseudonym. And so it's, it's interesting the, the debate that kind of reemerges in the, in the, I guess the last uh, quarter century of of uh, of the 18th century, so it, it kind of ebbs and flows in Baptist life. Uh, I, I do think the vast majority of particular Baptist churches, at least, were uh, a kind of closed communion. Another term you see in the literature is strict communion. Another term is restricted communion. Um, so you, you kind of see how that kind of ebbs and flows. But I don't think open communion really gains a a majority for quite some time. I, I do want to get Jonathan um, on, on broader Reformation thinking on this topic. Is there distinctive viewpoints um, from other, I guess, segments of Protestantism on, on the topic? Yeah. Um, so sorry if I cut out. I don't know what's going on. I've got a little bit of internet instability. I'm currently on the road, as Connor mentioned, living a peripatetic lifestyle between Nashville and then up north. So um, if it cuts out, I'll, I'll come back on, but, uh, yeah, it's a, a great setup for, um, the, the Baptist conversation is a great setup for kind of what's, what comes before, um, you've got kind of a spectrum of belief, of course, 
and the you know 100 150 years um before the particular baptists kind of come onto the 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 religious stage there um and to kind of take a step back what the what we have kind of at root here is this attempt to approximate the um the invisible church with the visible church so you've got um really a, a fight over um, and among the Swiss, the Germans, and the French over how one goes about that. And the problem you run into in the earlier period is this, um, the state church. And even in England before um, 1640, um, before kind of the recognition of the dissenting churches and the rise of the particular Baptists, you've got, uh, with the royal supremacy, this uh, kind of uh, body politic is is commensurate with the visible church, which is supposed to be commensurate with the invisible church. And so that really causes a lot of tension in England and uh, even before that and on the continent. And you've have them wrestle with that in different ways. And so the, um, the Lutherans kind of start early on with uh, this uh, process of preparation and examination. And that's kind of spearheaded by the minister. Luther even writes a sermon on it in 1518, I believe, um, to his congregation to help them prepare for the Lord's Supper, because in doing that, you're able to kind of, in, in some sense, weed out the unworthy, um, according you know, to Paul's prescription in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and so you've got this self-censuring that's supposed to go on, led by the minister, and that pattern is repeated um, in Switzerland and in France. It's unclear whether there's a direct kind of um, chronological connection um, between the three, certainly the, the, the three areas, there's certainly this um, reciprocal relationship with the writing letters back and forth about how to deal with these issues over the course of the 16th century into the 17th. Um, but nevertheless, this similar attempt to kind of provide for the self-censuring of the folks that would come to the communion table um, early on by preparing themselves and, and deciding whether or not they're one um you know, converted, and if so, if they've been in some kind of grave error or sin that might um, cast some kind of shadow or aspersion on their profession of faith, so that's kind of the yeah around uh, you know kind of around uh, the world way to come back to the the question of the the Baptists. They've come out of all of these conversations that are going on, and they're um, what they end up going with, and you know the close, open, or close communion the churches kind of take different positions. And for a while there, there's no, among particular Baptists, especially there's no, as Jacob mentioned, there's no quite, um, you know, kind of orthodox position as it were. So um, I don't know if that helps or muddies the waters, but all I, you know, all that to say it's, it's quite complicated early on. And you see a variety of iterations of what would come later in these early churches on the continent and in England. Excellent. So I, I do want to take, a pause for our audience. If you have thoughts or questions, go ahead, kick them over to us now on this historical little survey. Uh, Cause I do want to jump in to the practical aspect of what's your viewpoint. Why do you think one is correct over the other? Um, so we've got our first segment here. So I'll give audience, I'll give you what 60 seconds to type me a question. And if you don't type one, then I'm going to go on. So wh- while you're typing a question, if you are, before we j- jump in, Jake, this seems like an appropriate time for you to give us a nice little segue with your tremendous communion story uh, before we jump into the topic at hand, which I think was introduced to me by either Jesse or Sam Renahan. I'm not sure who it was who brought it up, but this needs to be out on the, uh, out in the air. So tell us this great communion story. 
so anticipated. And then if you have a question, audience, whoever's listening, watching, we'll get to it after Jake's done. Well, number one, let me say nobody asked me any questions about this story after I get finished with it. So we'll leave it there. I want to say, first of all, that I'm very thankful for uh, being raised in the church, being raised in a Baptist church. And even many times I'm thankful that I was reared in, in, in a landmark context. Although I would, you know, depart from where some of that is, what it taught, I'm thankful for the grounding it gave me. And I also want to say that, you know, as the years pass, I realize more and more that I don't know as much as I think I know. And so uh, time humbles us all, and the Lord continues to humble and teach. Having said all of that, I, and I used to think I had the answers to a lot of things, and I don't. I find that I have fewer answers these days. Having said all of that, when I was growing up, we were in, in a landmark background, but we were in a kind of a even very smaller landmark group, we'll put it that way. So we had our own traditions that others didn't have. So we only did communion once a year, and usually it was... A, where I grew up at was on the Wednesday before Easter. Uh, first church I pastored, we did it the Saturday before Easter. Um, one of the reasons we did that was so we wouldn't have any visitors show up because we didn't want to have to be confrontational and tell them they couldn't participate since they weren't members. You know, we were a landmark Baptist, but we didn't want to be, you know, hateful about it and tell them, you know, you can't join us. So we did it when most people don't show up, especially on a Saturday. So, Growing up, when we went, we didn't talk to each other. You know, we got in the vehicle silence, to the church silence. You know, we didn't talk to each other. We took our places, service, did it, silence, leave, silence, vehicle, go home, silence, then we talked. I always noticed, so it was, like, it was very much like going to a funeral. It was, you know, it was, the emphasis was on reverence and, and being somber, but as you can tell, kind of to an extreme. You know, it was like you were going to the funeral home. And I always noticed that the pastor and the deacon stayed behind while the rest of us filed out, left, went home. Of course, then when I became a pastor in that group and, and began at my first church, I learned why. Uh, they stayed behind because it was taught that the leftover elements, the unleavened bread, and I'm sure your audience will be shocked to hear that we did not use fermented wine, but we used Welch's grape juice as Jesus used in John 2 at the wedding at Cana. That's what we were taught, and I preached that back in the day too, unfortunately. So we were taught that whatever was left over was to be buried behind the church to represent the burial of Christ. So there I am as a 20-year-old for my first communion service. I had been instructed in this, so I came to the church with a shovel from home. We did the service, and we uh, I had two deacons at that church. And where we were, I mean, if you want a... a a visual of a rural country Southern Baptist church, we were it. White cinder block, cemetery next to us. There I am in my white shirt, my suit, my tie, took my coat off, left it in this building. We made our way to the back, outside, 
where we were going to bury the elements. Now, if any of you have ever done communion, if you're a minister, you've seen it, you usually know that there's like a little canister. You, you get the big Welch's bottle, because that's what we're supposed to use. And you would take that and you'd pour it then into a little canister, and then you'd, you know, squirt it into the little cups, and that's how you distribute. Well, I like Welch's grape juice. I actually think it tastes good. So my, you know, and I had went, you know, I had bought that. So I was going to, you know, what we had left, I was going to, you know, take home. I was just going to pour what was in that little canister, what was left in it, into the, to the ground. So here we go. Us three make our way. I roll my sleeves up, my shirt, sleeves up. And there I do, begin to dig. I thought years later, people might have passed by. I wondered where, you know, we were trying to dig up some grave out there body snatchers or something. And I put the unleavened bread we had left down at the, you know, the bottom. And then I poured the, the little canister and, and I thought we were done for the evening. And, you know, I'm it, by this time in Mississippi, it's hot. So I'm sweating like, I don't know what, I'm ready to get back in the AC. And I had a deacon say, oh no, brother Jake, we got to give it all to the Lord. So there I was with that big old Welch's container and just dumped that whole thing into the ground and then cover the hole up. And no, I didn't go then the next day, Easter Sunday, and go dig it up to represent the resurrection of Christ. I share all this to say the Lord is merciful and gracious to us. He has been to me in many ways. I know if you're listening to this after the fact, I have been crying. So uh, it's funny the first time, but like the second time you hear it, it's just, I don't know what to say. That was the third oh, or fourth man. time for me. And I think it was even funnier that time. If the Lord yeah. blesses well, me to ever to teach everyone else Baptist is- history in a classroom, I hope that'll be one thing all the students remember about taking me is to hear that story. So. And I like seeing other people's reactions to it. If you're if you're watching this live Hanover House, you can see the faces, I think. But that that was rich seeing you guys react to to Brother Jake's uh, wonderful story. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So um, with that in view, I didn't get any questions. So whoever's watching or listening, you need to save your questions. Well, thank goodness, end, I'm I glad guess. nobody asked any more questions about that. So. Um, now that said, I, I want to get into, I guess, the more practical aspect of what's your own theological opinion on these sort of things. So I guess I can go first and then people can just critique me if they want and tell me this is, you haven't thought about this enough and maybe I haven't. So in my peon little brain, the way I've thought about this, um, and I think before I share my own theological opinion on it, I wanted to make a distinction that I think is helpful, at least in my mind between uh, the regular practice uh, of the Lord's table, with, like if someone's at, regularly every single week there partaking of it versus I'm there um, for a special occasion, I came to visit my family, so I'm visiting this church. So the way I think about it is I would be open communion uh, for those irregular sort of visits. So if someone uh, is a family member, say, you know, my one of my uncle, uh, one of my uncles, I guess, and my and one of my cousins, they're Presbyterians. Um, I guess my 
uncle was baptized as a believer, but my cousin was not. Now, if he came and visited me, came to church with me, I know he's a believer. I'd be fine open communion for that one Sunday or two Sundays if they're there for two weeks sort of thing. However, I think when it comes to regular practice of communion, if you're there every single week, I'd be more closed communion where I don't care if you've been baptized by immersion. I think you need to be a member of this church to regularly partake of the table with us. Um, Because to me, the reason I take those two positions, the reason I say open for someone who's irregularly there is because to me, the way the table is a, a covenant meal saying, I affirm you as a believer. So if I deny you the table, I'm essentially saying you're not a believer. And I don't want to say that. Uh, and maybe there's a way to circumvent that worry. Now, the reason I'd be okay going closed on a regular basis uh, for someone who's regularly there is because I think if if you're regularly a part of this church and not a member, there's something weird going on here uh, that we need to address. So that's that's my two cents. You guys can tell me that I'm wrong or I'm crazy off the reservation, or maybe tell me that no one has thought that in the history of the church to have a two-tiered system. I don't know. I'm I'm not a Baptist historian like all you guys, so you guys got to tell me where I'm... I took Baptist history with Dr. Nettles, Tom Nettles, so I mean, I should know something, but not as much as you guys, so tell me what's going on here. One thing I'd, I'd just say historically to kind of frame the conversation, um, it, when when talking about open communion, particularly now, um, even among Baptists, I think in some ways it's more helpful to think of kind of four nodes, closed, closer, close, open, because some would say, including some Protestant liberals, um, that open would be all people, including some, some might say people of all faith. And that actually has even an historical root um, in England. And I mean, I'm thinking particularly in the the 1640s, there was debate over whether or not we should, whether or not um, the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance. And that was even among um, kind of an odd wing of the Puritan party. And they, was a, there was a big kind of uh, polemical tract debate. And when they went back and forth over whether or not they should be admitting people into um, to communion that um, weren't known to be converted. So all of that to say, I, you know, I, and under the framework I just kind of set out, I think I would kind of follow you in some ways, but I would land more on the um, closed, uh, closer, close, probably on the close side where those known to be believers um, and made a profession of faith um, those I would admit to communion. The, the caveat being, though, that I would always, if I needed to err on one side, it would always be the closed side, all the way back to kind of the local congregation. Um, and again, going back to um, mm. the pastor's uh, charge to care for this group, this local uh, body of believers, and to shepherd their souls to eternity, there is, in some sense, a, a, um, a duty incumbent on the pastor, on the pastor, to ensure that they're not communicating unworthily and that they're not admitting non-believers to the sacrament. And so a pastor can have kind of a, you know, a, a greater or lesser sense of somebody who's there as a visitor or somebody who's there irregularly, you know, where they, where they kind of stand. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't, sorry, Garrett or whoever was about, I think you're Garrett, you're about to talk. I'll let you talk in a second. Um, I, just a thought that came to my mind, something that's always messed with my brain a little bit and my own theological thinking on this is, you know, the very first, I guess, I mean, communion service with Jesus and the and the disciples seems that Jesus willingly gives the cup and the bread to Judas, which always seems like confusing. So maybe somebody wants to explain that and answer how that how that works into our frameworks here, because um, I think a lot of people 
who want to advocate, just give it to anybody indiscriminately. Don't ask questions. Would look to something like that and say, well, look, Jesus gives it to Judas and he knew, clearly he knew he wasn't a believer. So how does that, I guess, play into this? This may be a little bit simplistic, but that particular act of giving of the the bread and the cup to Judas is a particular fulfillment of scripture. Uh, Maybe it's just as simple as that. Um, I don't know if I would make some kind of prescriptive uh, point from that. Um, so, so one question I want to come back to Jordan, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't intend this as kind of provocative toward you. I want to know, is, is it necessarily the case that denying someone to the table is denying their Christian profession? Uh, I think that is a really important feature of this conversation. Cause if it yeah. is, I think my opinion would probably be different. Um, if saying you cannot come to the supper at my church means I don't believe you're truly converted, then I think that it, that really changes the terms of the conversation. Um, so for instance, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about Catholicity. And so if we have that view of the supper, there, there's no sense in which Baptists could truly be uh, small C Catholic, um, because yeah. we would say only immersion, um, only baptized by immersion converts are truly in the church and can partake worthily of the supper. And um, that blocks out not only a large number of people currently, but think about for 2000 years. So I think we would have to say that admitting and denying people from the supper does not necessarily mean that they, that we're denying their Christian testimony of conversion so I think if you were to remove that element from this, I think it changes a good bit. Um, so I'm interested, is that necessarily the case? Every time I have advocated a more restricted view, that's always been the pushback. I think that's almost like intuitive or instinctual that, oh, to disallow someone from the supper means you're denying their Christian conversion. Well, that's not true in the case of church discipline. When we censure someone from the supper, um, we're... We're not saying we don't believe you're converted. Uh, there are other kinds of hmm. kind of intermediary statements that are being made with someone censured from the supper um, for some reason. Um, that, anyway. I think you're putting your finger on an important issue. I I do struggle to think about like so if we're talking about you know excommunication and church discipline, it seems that excommunication taking the table away from them is like that you are being treated as a Gentile or a non-believer, as I think Matthew 18 would suggest. So it seems to me that the table is a marker of whether you're a believer or not. I think I would take it more like Paul confronting Peter in the book of Galatians. I saw this conduct was out of step with the gospel, so I opposed him to his face. I think that's how I view the, the, the discipline, disciplinary censure from the table— uh, excommunication, I think, is that statement of, at least in some situations, we've lost confidence in your in your Christian conversion. Centering from the table is there's something significant, some, something significantly out of step with the gospel in your life, and we're calling you to repentance so that we could restore you to table fellowship. I think I view the censuring as kind of an intermediary step between full fellowship and excommunication. Um, 
but anyway, I'm, I'm interested in that. I think the church discipline piece um, is, is a big deal in our understanding of the supper. And it impacts who we would allow or disallow to come. If, that, if the supper is a means or a tool of church discipline, then I think church membership status has a, a, lot to, a big part to play in the discussion. Yeah, I mean, so for, from a practical perspective, I mean, I think one of the things I would want to ask related to, to what y'all are discussing is um, if we don't take the open communion approach and we do something like close, and so we don't permit, let's say, a, a paedo baptist to the table, um, I think that the question that we need to answer is, um, what are we saying? Or, or why are we borrowing them from the table? Because to me, it's it's totally weird. You know, Mark Dever has Ligon Duncan. Well, I guess Ligon Duncan's an exception because Ligon was baptized as a believer. But let's say Mark could have a, a paedo-baptist come and preach at his church, and he'd have no problem with that. But then he would tell them, you cannot take of the table. Now, that seems really radical and odd to me to say, you can come preach. You could deliver the the word but you cannot partake uh, of the sacrament after the fact? Like, what's going on here? That seems like a huge disconnect. Yeah, would Garrett, would you say that the issue of baptism in particular and the right administration of it, would you say that is that kind of Galatian scenario where you are not, you're not questioning somebody's salvation, but you're saying to your pedo-baptist brother, hey, I believe that because you've not rightly entered the sacrament, right? That like you're walking out of step with the gospel in, in some way, shape or form. Um, not in any sort of like disciplinable way, but like, is, is, would, would you say that's kind of in line with what you've been saying in regards to like a close view in particular? I don't think so. Um, I don't think I would say that a pedo Baptist is out mm-hmm. of step with the gospel in like the Peter Galatians two kind of way. Um, yeah. I, I think I would make the distinction like we would make in ecclesiology about there's rightly ordered churches, there's uh, irregular churches, and then there's false churches. So I would say my paedo-baptist brothers are irregular in their attention to the ordinance of baptism. Um, and the the supper, I think, is one of those uh, frequent—sorry, uh, Jake, more frequent than a year—one uh, of those frequent— points of contact where uh <laughs> where um you you examine if your if your life is rightly ordered according to God's God's design. And so there are there are some good arguments for why baptism uh precedes the Lord's Supper. Here's just one. I I'll, I'll let you guess from what confession of faith this comes from. It says um uh, it talks about Christian baptism. It says, It's a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Anyone want to take a stab at what horribly restrictive and narrow-minded Baptist confession says that? I want to take a guess. I think it's, it's the, the BFM 2000. 2000. It is, yeah. All of you, all of you Southern Baptists out there, uh, your own Baptist faith and message takes this strict Baptist view. And so I think there's something to that. I mean, I know some of our 1689 friends sometimes even uh, joke about the Baptist faith and message um, being sometimes not as stringent or precise as they might like it to be. But at least on this, it takes a very strict view. Um, I think 
I think we should think about that. Hey, but before Jake gets too excited over here, I get, he's like, I can't even believe he's been this patient. Um, but so before, because I know we're going, we're going to go away from open and he's going to, you know, just explain it to us all. But um, I just want to know, it, it, maybe Jordan can help us. If, if you were to do, let's say, open communion, how how do you, um, if you want to fence the, t- the table in some meaningful way, Let's say you have a Presbyterian present. You you're you're willing to admit them to the table, um, but how how do you fence the table in a meaningful way? Is, is it a conversation beforehand? Is it uh, yeah. just in you know some some pronouncement you give before the supper? Uh, do you go Spurgeon and start handing out those tickets, or you know how how do you I, how do you do it? I mean, Jesse, just. Think about your average church. I bet your average church, the, the fencing of the table is the pastor or whoever explaining this is for believers only, and there that's the extent of the fencing. I don't. I mean, honestly, I don't think I've ever been to a church that did more. Yeah, and Jordan, maybe you make it sound more simple than than I mentally make it because I I've been I've been at my church for two years and I inherited the open communion. And I, I have some convictions about that, um, but I, f- I feel like I fumble it every time. Like I, I say stuff like, <laughs> uh, "This is a this is a this is a covenant meal for new covenant members," and um, if you're if that means you've trusted in Christ uh, and Christ alone for your salvation, and you have the accountability of a local church, and and there's nothing going on in your life that's you know a serious unrepentance. And I just keep I, I just fumble. I totally botch it because. I want to be so clear and and so um, protective of what this meal represents. And uh, I I actually want to, I don't know if this is going back, but I want to ask the question to kind of even help me think through it, because I'm probably going to change my mind on this issue three or four times before I'm dead. So um, I, I asked the question, what do the sacraments uh, indicate you know, what do they symbolize? You say, okay, baptism is our sign and seal, our entrance into the new covenant community, um, the, the the physical reminder of that and and, and, rep- and representation of that, and then that's the that's the initiating sign, right? Um, and then the the Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign. And who tells me that I have entered the new covenant? Yeah. Connor, that's a that's a, a great local question. Ch- a local church, a, a lo- yeah, a local church, and then so who tells me that I can continue on? Who has the authority to to say that I can enter and continue uh, receiving the signs, receiving the the sacraments? And and so it, both answer both the answer to both is the local church. And so the the question I'm going to just throw out there, and then somebody can answer, is if I don't have the authority to tell you that you cannot receive the supper, do I have the authority to tell you that you can? Yeah. If I could just take a stab at that, Connor, I'm, I'm similar to you. I'm a, I'm a pastor of a, of a great church and I have inherited an open communion practice as well. And my personal conscience is a little, is more restrictive than that. I I fence the supper almost every week at our church. We take the supper every week. And when I arrived, we would say, uh, this meal is for uh, baptized believers who are in right standing with your local church. 
doesn't have to be this one, uh, a, a, a church that preaches the same gospel that we preach. Uh, if you're a baptized believer in right standing. So we're, we've emphasized baptism. We've emphasized uh, membership of a church and uh, obviously a converted believer. And so when we say a member in good standing, we mean not under church discipline. And I think church discipline, that wielding of the keys of the kingdom, is the way that the congregation um, binds and looses. And so um, the the reason someone might not come to the supper shouldn't necessarily be, I, I sinned this week. I, you know, I thought a certain way this week, and therefore I'm unworthy to come. Or I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at this week, therefore I'm unworthy to come. We try to emphasize that the, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It's a means of grace where Christ is spiritually present, communing with us, administering grace to us. And that spiritual presence view, what we're saying is it's not if you sin this week, you shouldn't come. It's if you sin this week, you especially need to come. And so we try to emphasize that. And um, so when I got there, we were fencing the table this way. Baptized believer uh, in good standing with your church. And I, I was saying, this is great. This is awesome. But we regularly had people in our congregation who were paedo-baptists, who were not credo-baptized. So I brought this up um, at a uh, at an officer's meeting, or at least to the elders, um, and mentioned this. I was like, hey, you know, we, we're saying baptized, but it sounds like we don't really mean baptized by immersion. And so they basically said, yeah, what we mean is if you've been baptized according to what your conscience approves as what baptism is. So a Presbyterian sitting in our congregation believes that he's been baptized, and we leave the bapti- what baptism is to their conscience. So we fence the table in a closed way or a close way and um, leave it to their conscience to decide whether or not they should take it or not. Um I kind of gave a little pushback on that. And so what we ended up doing, we removed the word baptized from the way we fenced the table, which was not the effect I was going for. Uh, (laughs) It was polar opposite of what I was shooting for. Um, So now we just say, if you are a believer in right standing with your church, because what we didn't want to do was have two definitions of baptism, A a definition of baptism from the confession, the 69 confession our church holds that says baptism is immersion, but then a weekly verbal functional definition that says something that you do with water, whatever you think it is. Um, so we've, we modified toward an open view, which again was not what I was shooting for, but at least we're, at least we're clear now. Jake, are you ready to release? Yeah, that, release? that's uh, or, oh, Connor, you got something. No, to I was just going to say that's helpful. No, I was going to say that's helpful from, from what Garrett said. Um, he, he and I will have to chat after because, I have more questions, but it's it's irrelevant, and I do want to hear what Brother Jake has to say. For well, sure. I'll, I'll pipe in for a second first. Um, I uh, I by the way, side note, I always find it really funny that Link Duncan is always the example of what people use in regards to like allowing a pedo Baptist to the table. Like my pastor does it all the time. He's like, "Well, I'm going to be feasting with Lig in in glory, so why can't I feast with him now?" You know. Um, but, and of course, he uh, was baptized as a believer. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And that, I mean, that makes it complicated. Fun but, facts. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, one thing that I always think about, and this is me being an OT guy. So Exodus 12 and Passover, right? So some uh, sacrament, if you will, that is typifying 
to some degree the 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 supper or what we're kind of <clears throat> what's symbolized there. So the language of Exodus twelve is is interesting because it says, you know, no foreigner shall eat of it. But if you have, you know, in a sense, some form of an outsider or a hired worker among you, if they enter into the community through circumcision, right, then they can participate in Passover with your family, right? So if, if they enter into the community properly, then they can partake of this meal with you um, each year that you take it. And that's something that sticks with me as I think about the supper is this idea that I feel like the biblical expectation is that you are, you have properly entered into the community. And if you haven't properly entered into the community, community, AKA, um, if you've not been baptized as a believer, right. Whatever form that may come, right. Immersion whatever. Like if you've not been brought into the community as a believer, right, properly, then what does that say about whether I, yeah, allow, let's say, yeah, your run-of-the-mill paedo-baptist, not Lick Duncan, who was baptized as a believer, but like your, your kind of like run-of-the-mill paedo-baptist. What does that say about that? That's something that, and I don't know if I have a good answer to that, but that's kind of like that kind of biblical, I would say, push almost at least on my end, um, that's something that just sticks with me as I've thought through this question over the years. All right, Jake. Hit us with the hammer. (laughs) Well, let me start off by saying that it is interesting to note how the American Baptist confessions of faith all are strict communion. The New Hampshire Confession is that way. Uh, I pulled out to make sure I would be correct here, and from the Abstract of Principles, which governs the the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, on uh, Article 15 on Baptism, the last sentence, it is a prerequisite to church fellowship and to participation in the Lord's Supper. Um, And and the BFM, all of that's drawing from that heritage. Um, This is why we should actually know what our confessions say and subscribe to them, as opposed to what usually happens in Baptist life these days. Um, you know, I listened to all this and I, and I respect, so let me, let me first of all say, I would never make this an associational, uh, issue, which is one reason I do personally, if we're speaking about how an association governs churches, I do think the 1689 gets it right as not, not making that a confessional subscription issue. All right. So personally, I like the strict communion language, but I would not make that a associational fellowship issue. Now, can I chime in on that, Jake? Sure, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, so the 1689 is is basically agnostic on this issue, um, and for that reason, I'm fine being in a confessional church administering this in an open way. So that that's what we've covenanted together to do, uh, and so I don't feel like I'm violating my conscience by administering this in an open way. That was the collective will of the church uh, led by the elders uh, before I got there. And so I'm, I'm part of it. And so, um, you know, one day I'd love to teach on this and, you know, s- some slow change 
in a more restrictive way, maybe. Uh, but for me, it's not something I, I would I would divide over, nor do I feel like I'm sinning and administering it in a more broad way than uh, than I prefer. So for me, I'm I'm trying to preserve the unity of the church by specifically saying our confession. I don't want to be more strict than our confession is on on some of these kinds of things. Yeah, I, w- I want to make something very clear. I, I am not by any means wanting to uh, give the impression that I think that to be uh, close or closed is to be more faithful to the 1689 than to be open. Um, I do think to be close is to be more of a of a Baptist than to be open. I do think that. Um, but I'm not going to say that on the confessional part. Here's the thing. There is nobody in the history of the church, as I am aware of, as we're talking about here, Protestants, you know, all stripes here, everybody has believed that baptism is a prerequisite for communion. That is not a Baptist invention. You know, Baptists didn't invent that. What we say is baptism actually means what the scriptures teach, that it is for a believer who is immersed in the name of the triune God. Now, what happens a lot of times, and Jordan, all of your points that you raised about if you let a paedo-baptist person preach and all that, I want you to know that John Dagg answers nine objections in his treatise on church order, including those. So he was smarter than I was. And by the way, that's Mark Dever's uh, hero in Baptist polity is John Dagg. And so I would just encourage people, go read those things. Um, you know, it's funny you say that. I, maybe I'll give it away now. I've got an extra copy because I bought two of them, and I'm going to give one away. To I, I think so. I think it is a I think is an excellent work on Baptist polity. That uh, first of all, it's you know John. If I do a side note here, John Dagg's uh, work on his systematic theology was the first systematic theology ever pr- published by a Southern Baptist. And um, and his treatise on church order uh, is 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 excellent. And Garrett is holding up John Dagg. Now I know he does not look like a very friendly guy, um, but he is a Baptist hero and a stalwart. He's got he, that Jake Stone solemn face there, doesn't he? Oh no, I smile more than John Dagg. You know, I do smile. Um, <laughs> hey, can I can I double down on one of your points, Jake? Sure. Let, let me read you this from uh, from Abraham Booth. Yes. Uh, this is from Peter Naylor's book, which I highly recommend, Calvinism, Communion, and the Baptists, a study of English Calvinistic Baptists from the late 1600s to the early 1800s. Stellar book. He says uh, that Abraham Booth, uh, 1734 to 1806, uh, asserted boldly that Baptists who were not strict Baptists were not, strictly speaking, Baptists. The congregation... And he goes on and talks about Booth's church. And so Booth saw this as like, the strict view is like the most consistently Baptist thing to do. Here's what it gets to. William Kiffin said this in his work, Pushing Against John Bunyan. He said, I have no other design but the preserving the ordinances of Christ in their purity and order as they are left unto us in the holy scriptures of truth. And to warn the churches to keep close to the rule, lest they being found not to worship the Lord according to his prescribed order, he make a breach among them. Now, I know that we can get emotional and we don't want to be called sectarian, but as Baptists, we just need to own it because we've been being called sectarian for, for, for 400 years. So that's not going away. So either we're going to be Baptist or we're not going to be Baptist. You know, Andrew Fuller in his day, 
Uh, I've got all these things pulled up. We could read all this stuff all night. I don't want to go for three hours here and somebody end up being Just Uticus. join the Kiffin but, room. You can go on yeah, for three hours. Well, we can't. Well, yeah, you could, but, you know, I don't know if everybody can't travel to Louisville nice for plug. that. Um, the nice president plug. and founder of the Kiffin room right here, Jake. Thank you. So Fuller said here, to me, it appears evident that Pado baptism opened the door for the Romish apostasy and that the church will never be restored to its purity while it is allowed to have any existence in it. The grand cause of the church's having been corrupted so as to become apostate was its being, and then he has in all caps, mingled with the world. Pedo-baptism first occasioned this fatal mixture, and national establishments of religion completed it. And I think that when we're talking about who can come to the table, I'm not advocating that we have somebody standing there and they're ready to you know, swat somebody's hand that's going forth that we don't think you know, should get it. But I do think that our Baptist forebears thought it was important to get right. Getting worship, we've got to get right. How we do church, we've got to get right. And I know it was said earlier about, you know, if I'm going to dine with Lig at the table, you know, in heaven and all that. Well, that's one of the things that Dag raised. He said, yeah, we believe that there's people from everywhere who come to Christ's banquet table and are saved. But this is a church ordinance. This is something the church does. You know, that's part of the problem. I love George Whitfield. Thank God used him greatly. But he was having communion out there in the fields, you know, and everybody just come on. Um, us having communion at, at weddings and, and all these things. We have so gotten away from what Scripture teaches about it that when anybody says, well, this ain't just open for everybody, then, you know, all of a sudden I want to get offended by that. And, you know, Abraham Booth, William Kiffin, all those men— it's like, well, we're not trying to be mean. We're not trying to hurt people's feelings. We believe this is what Scripture teaches. And if all of us in Christianity have believed that baptism is a prerequisite for the table, then the question is, what is baptism? And if we're going to say that really doesn't matter, then the question is, why are we Baptists? Which is why Bunyan was consistent. I'll give him that. A consistent view is open membership in some ways with open communion. And, um, you know, I love Spurgeon. I, I thank God for him. I think he was wrong on this issue. You know, I, and I look, personally, I love the little ticket idea, but that's not regulative principle. So I can't go along with that. But that's what happens. See, when you go with open communion, you've already moved away from the regulative principle in some ways. So that's Fuller's point. Once you start down the trail a little bit, you know, that's how we get in trouble. So I think that if we're going to be consistent Baptist, I think that we should hold to a close communion. Now, when I pastored, I struggled with fencing too. How do I word it? How do I say it? I think sometimes we never did this, but I thought, you know, putting something in the bulletin, if somebody was visiting and they weren't sure, come talk to us afterwards. Um, I think that we need to separate what is Christian fellowship and what is church fellowship. And I think that communion, the Lord's Supper, the ordinances, that's a church fellowship issue. Uh, none of us would say that we recognize, at least you know, I think we all agree on this, that we would recognize sprinkling as baptism. That's why I really don't like talk, using the term infant baptism, because it's not baptism. Sprinkling. It's not, it's, it, there's, these terms mean something. And so I know that we want to be Catholic and we want to be friendly, and I agree with all those things, but that doesn't mean we stop being Baptist. 
And um, this is a free podcast. So. This is a free. Hey, well, I was commended for being patient. <laughs> I was patient, and I, you Pretty know, solid, and I, <laughs> I, you know, patient. I love everybody that is in two peas. I, so I, I feel I, like I'm, I feel like I've been sitting in a tent meeting right now, man. I'm I'm <laughs> feeling pumped up. Yeah, I'm sweating <laughs> well, for you, Jake. I'm I'm gonna go run through the aisles. Well, thankfully, that I am glad that we did we did not we did not do communion at the tent revival I preached. So we we did a lot of stuff wrong in that meeting, but we didn't do that thankfully. So Jake, so. can I ask? Let's. I would like to maybe ask it this way: when we talk about theological triage, sometimes you, Moeller's famous article and um, one of the Ortland's great books, "Finding the Right Hills to Die On," talk about like kind of first order doctrines, second order doctrines, and third order doctrines. Would you say this is a second? order doctrine for you or third because mm. um i don't know I, I, some, sometimes those categories are helpful um i guess if i were to try to define those uh third order doctrine we could have disagreement among the um, about this and be within the same church which is i think what i've been trying to say so like i'm in a i'm in a church where our practice is more open and I, I think some of our church members are probably more restrictive and some are more open about this, but our church practice is open. So I guess we're treating it like a third order issue. However, it does seem to get at something ecclesiologically that I would want to say is a second order issue. So I feel like I would talk about it like a second order issue, but I would practice it as a third order issue, which might just be inconsistent of me. Yeah. So so let's let's just kind of roll the dice here for a minute and let's just let's think about it for a second. So, you know, Connor, he's already confessed that he does open communion there where he pastors. Okay. So, but he he is doing a lot of good things where he serves at. I don't think if I if I were in that area, I don't think I would say, you know what, they do open communion there. I, I can't join that church, you know. I don't think that I would land there. I mean, so what? So I mean, if I'm if my choice is a obviously a Baptist church that is seeking to follow Scripture, you know, ordinary means of grace, moving in a, a confessional direction, you know, he's got something here that you know I don't agree with necessarily. But I mean, where am I going to go? Where else am I going to go to some you know a Reformed Pado Baptist church? I'm not going to go there because I don't think they're doing they're not doing baptism right. They don't practice baptism mostly correctly. Um, so why would I go there? So I, 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 I would be hesitant to make it, put it to that level where I would say I can't join that church. Now, if the choice is between, you know, put it this way, let's say that there's an open communion 1689 church in the neighborhood or a close 1689 church does close communion, I'd probably land at the close communion, you know. Now, there could be a whole host of other factors. The, the pastor there may be a jerk. I don't know. So why would I, I wouldn't go there if that's the case. Um, but I do think here's where we get in trouble. We get in trouble because ecclesiology does not justify. So I don't want anybody to hear, hear me thinking that I'm still, you know, a Baptist brighter and, you know, I'm on the old paths in that way. However, it does matter. We used to think ecclesiology represented the gospel, actually. That's what Baptists used to believe. That's why it was so important. 
And I think we're so scared of sounding too tribal that we kind of shrink back from what might be considered unattractive elements. Um, the, the case is Andrew Fuller would not have served communion to Lee Duncan. Or if we can go back to that point, you know, he wouldn't have served uh, John Newton. He wouldn't. Or John. Now, does that mean that he didn't love John Newton or think John Newton was, was not a brother in Christ? Of course not. He believed John Newton was a man of God and a fellow Christian. But that's how they understood. This was, you have to get polity right and worship right. All those things were intertwined. And that's why when we talk about the regulative principle, it's not just on worship. It is on all of our views of ecclesiology. And, and we're, we, we need it. We sorely need it. If, people can disagree with me, and that's fine. I hope one thing that can be brought out of this is, as, as Baptists, we need to start really looking at ourselves and asking, how did we get in the mess we're in in 2021 when it comes to how we do church and stuff? Whether we're looking at what's happening in, you know, SBC world or wherever else, how did we get here? And it's because we stopped actually believing the gospel transforms the church, and polity, and how we do things. And we started looking for the business world, and corporations, and pragmatism. And when pragmatism becomes a substitute for biblical polity, we get what we do, what we've got right now. And I'm not trying to preach, and I'm not trying to get on a rant here, but that's what's happened, sadly. And we can have charitable differences. You know, Jordan's more of a John Bunyan guy. I'm more of a William (laughs) Kiffin guy. And that's fine. You know, we're still brothers in Christ, and I think we still have the same aims and goals. And that's okay that he's wrong, and I'm right, you know, but we are to show grace to each other. But I think we need to really start committing ourselves. Last thing I'll say, and then I'm done for this evening, because I don't want to, you know, filibuster here. But our Baptist associations used to do circular letters. And in our little Kiffin Room meeting, we read about Andrew Fuller about the decline of revival and the need, the decline of religion, the need for revival. And, you know, I was there this past year down in Nashville, and I heard Vision 2025, which is, was a regurgitation of what we've heard in, in the last 50 years, basically. And in this letter from Fuller, you know what he talked about? You need to go to prayer meeting. You need to go to your members' meetings. You need to go attend worship in the ordinances. You need to pray. You need to be in the Word. You need to grow in holiness. That's how we'll see revival. And he talked about how religion had declined. You know, we need to get serious about things as Baptists. We've been on this train about what's popular and what's pragmatic for too long, and we're off the rails. And the solution is not to just keep doubling and tripling down on all this stuff. It's to get back to our roots. And I would be glad to see more people of a Kiffin spirit, a Bunyan spirit, a Spurgeon spirit um, in, our, in our midst than what we've got today. So other than that, I have no opinions or no thoughts. <laughs> Get, getting back well, to the, the ordinary <laughs> meetings and the extraordinary grace. Now, so we've been going on for a while, So, I, but I want to give Jesse and John, you guys have a chance to, to give any closing comments. Um and maybe Connor too. I'll give you a shot too. So Jesse, do you have any closing thoughts or comments? Well, I think uh, I think Jake's right. I mean, historically, I think you want to be asking, is is the Lord's Supper a church ordinance? I mean, I think that is the the key question. And, and I think you might say that of baptism as well. 
so that we're not partaking of the Lord's Supper at church camp, um, and ideally not baptizing <laughs> at church camp either. So, I mean, I think the church ordinance thing is the is the key is the key thing. Um, so, if you read or were to go back and read Helwes, uh, Thomas Helwes, or you to read even John Smith, uh, I know he goes astray, but if you read his character of the beast. Um, he's getting right at these things of baptism and the Lord's Supper as being church ordinances. And so I, I think Jake's point there is is really important. And I think if we're going to really reflect on these things, um, and, and even what he said about if baptism is a prerequisite to partaking of the Lord's Supper, and if we don't think someone is rightly baptized, and this is a church ordinance— um, I think that's significant. And, and that really is the essence of what the Baptist argument was or has been um, for, for, for at least in the 17th century. I mean, in the early 17th century, I'm again, thinking about Smith and Hellas, I mean, that's, that's like 1609, 1610, 1611. So really early on. Um, so I think thinking about it that way as being a church ordinance, um, the idea of covenanting together and the reason that we can partake of these ordinances and administer the ordinances is because we have covenanted together and thereby having the keys of the kingdom, uh, having covenanted together in a covenant community. I mean, that, that is the way I think of, of considering these things. Good stuff. Jonathan, anything to add? Uh, not much. Again, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I if I had to err on one side, I think um, I'd err on the side that Jake's elucidated um, so well. Um, I would say, though, in thinking through it and thinking kind of um, through this historically, the way that um, we see kind of, particularly in the, the reformers in the, the mid to late 16th century and into the uh, early 17th century, talking about, um, you know, admission to communion, uh the key, a key component that we haven't really touched on is unity and the unifying nature of the ordinance um, of the sacrament. Um, and I think a key question there for us practically then is what exactly is unifying about the Lord's Supper? And so if we're thinking about 1 Corinthians 11 um, and thinking about, you know, the the communitarian kind of aspect there where Paul's kind of upbraiding the Corinthian church for, you know, um, essentially showing uh uh, favoritism um, amongst themselves. Uh, we also then have to think about kind of First Corinthians twelve when Paul talks about um, he's talking to the Corinthian church, and saying that they they are kind of members of this body of Christ. And so, in thinking about that, then our unity as Christians, those who profess the gospel um, correctly and appropriately, biblically, our unity is in Christ around the gospel, and the ordinance, in some sense, is instituted for that unity, so that we all may be one, kind of um, uh, amongst one another. So, I, th- I think, practically speaking, it's helpful to think about the administration of the Lord's Supper in the way Jake has said. That said, I would want to kind of um, place a, a slight pause or a slight deviation there for, and Jake does this. He's certainly not saying that. Um, you know, we, we can't necessarily do this. He's just saying you wouldn't do this, but um, for kind of that, that close communion that I talked about earlier, not full open, i.e. anybody anywhere can come. This is a converting ordinance, but that close, anybody who's a profess who professes the gospel correctly and biblically may come to the Lord's Supper because ultimately we are united uh, in the body of Christ. And this, in some sense, this meal is a representation of that unity. It certainly does other things, but um, it's it's not less than this uh, kind of unifying uh, ordinance. Good stuff. Now, Connor, you have the floor. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't have really anything to add. I mean, this has been a really, so I, maybe two things. One, this has been a really good exercise for me. So appreciate you guys hopping on and, and giving your um, wisdom and, and stories and, and storytelling. It's been very, it's been very uh, uh, fruitful and, and beneficial. So thank you. And secondly, I just have something to say to Jake. Jake, you're, you're more than welcome. You know, if you submit to our elders and, and you want to move up here, we'd love to have you as a member. And you know what? I, I may even give you the pulpit. I might, I might do that. We, 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 we gotta sort sort through some things. We'll talk about it, but you know that that could be that could happen. All I, all I ask is for a wanna... fall and spring week of revival. That's it. <laughs> That's right. Not re- and and not revivalism. Yeah. Not but revivalism. I'll even I'll even, pull, I'll even Connor, we're sound, sounding a little too. I'll uh, even pull out my sixteen eleven. Sounding a little too elder ruled for my comfort. What what what, Jonathan? Uh, sounding a little too elder ruled for my comfort. Ah, well, there's, there's, uh, that's a, you know, we just another discussion. Right? I'm an elder rule man for the most part. So here we go. I well, doesn't, sur- that, doesn't surprise us, Jordan. We already well, know that, that you air on Baptist polity. That so. is totally, that's <laughs> totally Jordan. Yeah. Uh, if, if, just for the record, we are we are certainly a not an elder rule Baptist church. <laughs> Jordan, I feel a little bad. I feel like we kind of bulldozed the whole open communion view. Um, the, there are some really, really strong defenses of the open communion view. I don't want to pretend like it, it doesn't have its its strong points. I feel, I feel like our conversation was pretty strongly in favor of a close or closed communion perspective. But um, Daniel Turner's work I mentioned earlier, A Modest Plea, um, you can find it for free online. Um, it's written in the uh, late 1700s. Um, you should be able to find it for free. It's really strong, and it's actually surprisingly clear so if you're out there listening to this somewhere uh, and think oh, old documents are hard to read, maybe in, maybe the 17th century documents are hard to read. The 18th century documents are really quite comprehensible. And so that uh, work by Daniel Turner, he basically takes stuff from uh, John Collett Ryland and kind of revises it. And uh, it's a re- I think, in my opinion, it's one of the best cases for open communion. Um, and it kind of hinges on the on the verse, you know, in, in Romans 14, you know, we should not exclude those whom Christ has welcomed. And I think there's something really strong and powerful about that. And even kind of beautiful about that, even though yeah. I don't personally yeah. hold to that. Uh, I, I agree with that verse. Too. I don't personally hold to that practice. <laughs> <laughs> Clarification. I, I, I would just clear. I, I would just put out there again. I know we've like mainly focused on history um, here tonight, but I do think like I was trying to reiterate before, that like the biblical pressure it's not just a historical argument we're trying to make but like we genuinely believe that the biblical biblical pressure um at least most of us here um is is for yeah the close communion view because it's all about the proper and the biblical administration of the sacraments um, and those being enjoyed in the context of local churches so uh, that's good. Thanks, Cody. Uh, that's a, I think that's an appropriate way to end it. Um, while we did focus primarily, I guess, on historical and theological argumentation, um, we do want to be people uh, of the book, right? We want to be biblical exegetes, biblical scholars, and, and, and in all the right senses, not in a biblicistic way. Um, Jake, yeah, what you, what you got? Last thing to tag on what you said, <laughs> to remember that as Baptists, we are a people of the blood, the book, and the oh, blessed gosh. hope. <laughs> can, can you clip that so that the episode closes out with that? 
<laughs> yeah. That, um, yeah. That's if it. If someone's listened this that's far, it. is not a Baptist. Do you know? <laughs> uh, you, they're converted. <laughs> they 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 have they have converted. You either be here or on the other side of glory, but yeah. Oh man, here we go. I, I do want to take note though that Jake Jake talked about not being sentimental. And then he got sentimental and said, Connor, I don't like open communion, but I'll go to your church. And he doesn't have a good reason for that. It's just it's sentimental. <laughs> I, I was really I was trying ch- to I was trying to use an illustration to help. Of course, if he got me up there, we'd get the church on the right track in that sense. So. <laughs> the illustration might not be the reality, though, it sounds like. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I'm going to close out this recording with, uh, for those who've been listening, uh, we, we appreciate you tuning in, and hopefully this has been helpful uh, to at least think through some of the issues, to give you some ideas, something to chew on. And I'm going to try to put in the notes. Uh, you know, we talked about Dag and Kiffin and Turner and some other people. I'm going to try to put that in there so you can have access to those easily. Um, but we appreciate you tuning in. Hopefully we, you found um, something to chew on, to think about, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Uh, let us know questions, thoughts uh, as you have them. Didn't have any questions on this live episode, which is a little bit of a bummer. But hopefully, as if we do them in the future, we'll have more questions and opportunity for you to tune in and to, I guess, join the show. So thanks for everybody for listening. This has uh, been the only, uh, I guess, an episode of the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.